everybody, and welcome to Tales from the Heart, a live podcast brought to you by the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association and streamed live on Facebook on Fridays at 11 a.m., two to three times a month. So today we are joined by Dr. Martin Marin as my co-host, and uh, good morning, Marty. Good morning, Lisa. How are you? I'm getting through this week. So... (laughs) been a rough one. And for all of those who sent their condolences at the loss of my dog, Foxy, I really appreciate it. It's been a rough week, but we're back on topic here today. And we're going to talk about atrial fibrillation and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, a very frustrating and difficult situation for patients with HCM to manage. So just some housekeeping tips before we get started on podcasting today. So we are broadcasting live on Facebook and doing this recording, which will live on our podcast universe, um, where you can pick up wherever you pick up your podcasts. Today, we're going to be talking live with Dr. Marin about atrial fibrillation. And at the end of our talk, we will take your questions. So I would encourage you to kind of listen along and organize your questions. And I'll give you the heads up as to when to hit send, because some of your questions might get answered in the conversation. So Marty. Yes. What is atrial fibrillation? It's a good place to start. Um, So atrial fibrillation or AF, as we abbreviate it, AF, is an irregular rhythm of the top chamber of the heart, which originates therefore in in what, what we call the left atrium, left upper chamber. And the atrial fibrillation rhythm that occurs or can occur in patients is, uh, as I said, an irregular rhythm. So it, it instead of each impulse from the upper chamber going nicely down to the lower chamber in a one-to-one way, atrial fibrillation causes there to be erratic, an erratic um, rhythm of the top chamber, which means that the bottom chamber then beats irregularly too. So you, instead of nice uniform heartbeats let's say it's 60 beats per minute. Um, In atrial fibrillation, one's heartbeat can be literally all over the place, but often very fast, faster than normal. Um, And so AF is an irregular top chamber rhythm that causes oftentimes fast heartbeats that are irregular. Okay. So if you have this fast heartbeat that is irregular, Mm What happens to the other part of the heart? So if the top part's beating too fast, what's happening in the ventricle while AFib is occurring? Yeah, so what's happening in the left lower chamber or the left ventricle, which for everybody listening, of course, is the ventricle that's most often affected by HCM, where the heart muscle is thicker than it should be. That's occurring, that thickness is part of the left ventricle. What's happening there is that left lower chamber, left ventricle is, is, is beating also very fast and irregular, okay? And when that happens, when that happens, um, you, you really have a decrease in the amount of blood flow that is coming into the left lower chamber from the left upper chamber. And that reduction in the amount of blood coming into the left lower chamber can be as much as 30%, okay? So let me summarize that for a minute. When a patient goes into atrial fibrillation, because of the irregular nature of that rhythm, there is a reduction 
in the amount of blood flow of almost 30% to the left lower chamber. And the left lower chamber is beating faster than it should usually, and in a disorganized, irregular, kind of chaotic way. Okay. So we lose the kick from the right. top to the bottom. That's right. And when we say kick, let's talk about what that means. Just because that's really important because I think we, we use that term sometimes without defining it for patients. What, what Lisa is saying is that in atrial fibrillation, there is loss of what is called atrial kick. So what that means is the, the, the ability of the left upper chamber to contract and provide that blood flow to the left lower chamber, each heartbeat is reduced significantly in AF. So within hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we have ventricles that tend to be a little smaller right. and stiffer. And therefore, we always talk about how hydration is really important to HCM to keep that volume. Now mm -hmm. we've lost volume because of this small ventricle and now we're right. losing kick from the atria. So we're getting a double whammy. And let's do a third whammy. If you've got obstructive HCM, that means that you, you know that decrease in blood flow to the left ventricle is being obstructed even when it goes out. So you kind of almost have a triple whammy if you're an obstructed HCM patient in AF. And those three things that Lisa just mentioned are, are major reasons why patients with HCM who go into AF feel terrible in AF. So is there a difference? This is a nuanced question that somebody just popped up. Is there a difference between atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter? Yeah, they're, so great question. They're kind of like, the way I look at them is they're sort of like brother sister in a way. They're, very, they're more similar than different, they're siblings. Um, so they're much more similar than different. The difference really is, is much more of a technical issue. It just has to do with what I'll call the organization of the rhythm more than anything else. The way we treat, the way they make, the way the rhythm atrial flutter makes you feel in a, with ATM is the same as atrial fibrillation. The treatments are the same, similar between atrial fibrillation and flutter as well. So, so the consequence of having flutter is, is similar to atrial fibrillation. Now, I will make one point about this, that one of the reasons that it is important to distinguish between atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter is that because the organization of the atrial flutter is different in many patients than fib, atrial flutter can often be cured with a catheter-based approach with a much higher success rate, much higher success rate than we can get with a catheter-based approach with atrial fibrillation. Okay, so because of that, it's really important for a patient to know whether it's a fib or a flutter that they have. So before we get into a lot of the treatment strategies here, right? Let's talk about how common this is in HCM. 
good. So it's common. So let's say, let's back up and say that atrial fibrillation, and, 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 and again, it, and, and you could say the same about flutter, are not unique to HCM. These are abnormal upper chamber rhythms that anybody in the general population can get. They are more likely, you know, people are more likely to get those abnormal rhythms with aging. So with age, risk of a flutter, AFib and a flutter goes up. So it's directly related the incidence of AF to age. Okay. What also makes it more likely for a, for a person to have atrial fibrillation is the presence of what we call heart disease, and including structural heart disease like HCM. Okay. So that means that if you've got HCM, you're much more likely statistically to develop atrial fibrillation because the structure of the HCM heart isn't normal. And that increases the chance more than a normal heart to develop atrial fibrillation at some point. And if you look at the studies that have been done, it comes down to about 25 to 30%. So about a third of patients with HCM will experience at least one episode of atrial fibrillation in their lifetime. That's a lot of people. Yep. And we know, as you mentioned earlier, it's much more troublesome to an obstructed patient who becomes uh, an AFib patient as well right. than it is to the non-obstructed. Neither, neither one is a good scenario, but it, it is a bit more challenging with the obstruction. So first of all, how does somebody know they have atrial fibrillation? Yeah, so, so you know, their atrial fibrillation often when it develops or occurs causes patients to be symptomatic, okay? Particularly, as we just said, in patients with HCM, okay? So if you're an HCM patient, you really don't tolerate well at all being in atrial fibrillation. And to the extent that a lot of patients with HCM know exactly when they go into atrial fibrillation because they know that they feel completely different as soon as that rhythm goes from regular to atrial fibrillation. And those symptoms that occur when that happens are most, most, mostly the following. Short of breath, you can feel your heart racing, what we call palpitations. If you were to check your pulse, you would, you would, you would sense the irregular nature to your heartbeat. You may get chest pain or pressure. You may feel out of sorts. You may have a decrease in your exertional capacity in, a, in, in, the, in an AF as well. You can feel lightheaded and dizzy. You feel like crap usually, and that's really true. Um, Great clinical term. We need to use that more. Yeah, they, people feel like they've kind of gone over the cliff a little bit. You know, um, it's, it can be very dramatic in HCM when a patient goes into AF. That's why it's such an important issue because it does impact so dramatically how a patient feels with AF. So we now have the opportunity as patients to have some wearable technology at home to help identify when these things might be happening. Obviously, you as a physician can order 
a Zio patch or a Holter monitor to check for rhythm, but we can wear it on our wrists through Apple watches. You know, I think Fitbit's working on the technology to be diagnostic for AFib as well. But right now we know Apple watch has an approval and the uh, Cardia mobile devices are available at home. What do you think about these home-based identification tools? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it, 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 these, these, these pieces of technology, of course, are evolving. They're becoming more and more important. Um, they're becoming better and better at doing what you just said in detection of abnormal rhythms. I think two of them, Cardia and, and the Apple Watch, tell me if I'm wrong, actually have regulatory approval for the detection of atrial fibrillation. They do. Yep. And so my thoughts are that, you know, for the, for the, for the issue of helping as a tool to provide additional information, in some ways, potentially confirmatory information, that a patient could be going into atrial fibrillation, these can be helpful devices for that reason. And, and I think for that reason, you know, have to be discussed with your doctor and explored, but I think we're seeing more and more the advantage of having the devices like that available at any time for a patient, as opposed to the devices that you get put on in the office, which lasts, you know, from a monitoring standpoint, a week or two or three weeks or four weeks, or which are very small slice of time. These obviously provide a whole different degree of flexibility in detecting rhythm issues, particularly atrial fibrillation. And so for that reason, I, you know, I, 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 at the moment, I'm optimistic that these will continue to be more, more and more important in helping us detect AF in HCM patients as we go forward. I agree with you on that one. And we have some efforts potentially underway to, um, well, I'll leave it hanging out there that we got some stuff working in this area. Both yeah, from a research, that's right. And I have some other projects that we might be working on to help put the technology into the hands of those who might not be able to otherwise afford it, but that's right. going to be a little ways off. Right. Okay, so we know what it is. We know how it's not good for the heart. Right. We know that we can detect it with clinical testing or home-based testing. But why is it important at all to know if it's happening if you're not feeling it maybe? Because some people don't feel their AFib. So if it doesn't make them feel like crap, why is it important to know that it's even there? So, so H, good question. So atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter are important rhythms, abnormal rhythms for two reasons, okay? two reasons. One is that when you experience those rhythms, they can make you feel bad, poorly. We just talked about that. So they can impact and sometimes significantly, your a patient's quality of life, particularly if they're recurring frequently, or if the episodes are long, um, that can be really disruptive and frustrating to feel that way for a patient. Number two is that both atrial fibrillation and flutter are associated with an increased risk of stroke. Something, of course, nobody wants, okay? And that, and let me explain why that is. When the left upper chamber, the left atrium is in atrial fibrillation or flutter, it's, as we said, beating erratically and irregularly. 
not in an organized fashion. And the reason that's important then is that blood can, for that reason, pool, become stasis, pool, in an area of the left upper chamber called the left atrial appendage. It's a little pouch, literally, that comes off the left atrium. It has really no real function. It's, it's, a, it's a remnant of a prior evolutionary uh, point in time, kind of like the appendix is in the gut. But here, because it's there, it's, it provides a nidus, a structural nidus for blood to clot when you're in atrial fibrillation or flutter. And then if there's a blood clot that forms, that clot can break off potentially. And that is the source, that blood clot breaking off is the source of what could end up in a vessel in the brain obstructing blood flow to a region of the brain, which is a stroke. So those are the two important issues that come with AFib. So they're really important issues. Really important, exactly. What do we do? <coughs> Excuse me. What do we do when we find out somebody is in AFib or a flutter? Do we change anything with their medical management first? So here's here's the deal. Let me start with this. What I just ended with, which is the stroke risk for a minute. Atrial fibrillation increases risk of stroke, you know, usually in anybody that has atrial fibrillation to some degree, but not everybody is that, is that risk increased enough. I'm talking about without HCM, is that risk increased enough that they need to be protected against stroke? That's not the case in HCM. Almost any amount of atrial fibrillation that a patient is starting to experience with ATM is enough that the risk of stroke is increased high enough for that patient that we recommend treatment to prevent the development of the blood clot in the left upper chamber. And the way that we do that is with a blood thinner. It's a pill, it's an oral pill, taken either once or twice a day that can thin the blood enough to prevent in atrial fibrillation, the development of that clot in the appendage. And these drugs are very effective at preventing stroke in that situation. So there's old school drugs and there's new school drugs. What is the preference in today's world for anticoagulation therapy? What drug is yeah. best? Right. So, so like in a lot of areas in medicine, this area too has gone under a lot of a, a, a progress and evolution in a very, you know, have to be considered a very positive way for a long time, up to, you know, about eight to 10 years ago, the only drug available to prevent stroke would have been warfarin or Coumadin, which was effective but challenging for patients to take because it had to be monitored, the levels with blood draws, sometimes fairly frequently, particularly starting the drug. Now that has completely changed with the emergence, again, over the last decade, basically, of what we call novel direct oral anticoagulant agents, 
um, that can provide patients the ability to thin the blood without monitoring with blood draws. So they're very convenient and they have very little, very little in the way of side effects. The major side effect of all these drugs, of course, no matter what, is an increased risk of bleeding if you have a trauma event. But other than that, there are very well tolerated and therefore fairly convenient to use. And so for that reason, we have a very low threshold, so to speak, uh, for recommending the newer anticoagulant agents in an HCM patient who has felt atrial fibrillation, even short duration, to protect them against devastating stroke event. So I did not have a stroke related to AFib, but I had it from another clot form. So I'm just here to tell you, if you can avoid having a stroke, please do so, because it is not a pleasant experience. And I am an incredibly lucky person to have minimal long-term side effects from something that happened over 30 years ago. So um, anticoagulation should be taken very, very seriously. I know it's not always everybody's favorite thing to do because they're afraid of bruising and, and the, the unsightliness of bruises and things on that nature. But uh, a couple of bruises versus loss of some of your brain function, it's a trade-off that you really need to consider making. Yeah, and on that point, I'll just, you know, I always like to sort of make the point, you know, as well, based on you know the, the idea that we you know that that there is really a lot of optimism in the way we treat HCM today, and 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 that a number. So so what I mean specifically here is that the number of stroke events in HCM patients really has dramatically decreased over the last decade compared to prior eras, and that reflects the newer medicines being given to patients, as well as the ability to detect AFib more reliably, and I think in a sense more accurately today with these monitoring devices. And it really has made a difference. I mean, we have to really point out the good when there is the good. It has really made a difference in protecting patients with this heart disease, HCM, from the devastation of a stroke event. So major advancements applied to this disease with these new drugs. If you go back into a lot of family histories of those with HCM and you start listening to what happened to aunts, uncles, grandparents, right. you'll see a lot more stroke deaths. My stroke. great aunt died of a stroke related exactly. to fibrillation. Right. And you, know, it, you don't see that anymore. I mean, yes, That's we right. have some random breakthroughs and it happens, but it's not nearly to the numbers that we saw. Even in the past 15 years, we've gotten so much better at detection, treatment, and preventative. Now, I wanna pivot for a second before we talk more about treatments. And I wanna talk about left atrial dimension and why it might be important for patients with HCM to kind of know when their atria are dilating more so, and that that could be a risk factor for the onset of AFib so they can be a bit more proactive about looking for it. So. What has left atrial dimension got to do with anything? What does it even yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That's a great question. And it's a really important area to cover because patients, one, ask about that and they should ask about it. Um, and here's the deal. There is a very strong relationship between the size 
we'll call it the diameter of the left atrium, this left upper chamber, and risk of developing atrial fibrillation in HCM. So that what I mean is the bigger that left atrium is, the higher the risk that that patient could develop atrial fibrillation as well, okay? So of all the things, you know, all the different variables out there, age, um, symptoms, um, other environmental issues, anything else in the clinical profile of a patient, the strongest predictor is this left atrial size. And the reason that is the case is because atrial fibrillation is being initiated from the areas of the left atrium. And the more that left atrium changes in structure by getting bigger, it just lowers the threshold for the atrial fibrillation to be triggered from there. And so we have a cutoff, generally speaking, of 45 millimeters. We're talking about, again, the diameter of the left atrium that's derived typically from the echocardiogram. It's a number that's reported on every echo that gets done. And 45 millimeters or more is, is generally when we start to become more, a little bit more concerned about risk of atrial fibrillation. Okay. And then when we get to that point and AFib happens, AFib begets AFib. It's That's like right. chasing its tail. Can you speak a little bit to what happens to help the heart be bad and go into AFib more often once it's already happened? Yeah, I also want to just, if I could just take one second to, to highlight, you know, um, something as well, you know, from a research standpoint, this is um, a, a, a calculator, a tool that was, that's been developed by my colleague, Ethan Rowan at Tufts. This was one of his research initiatives was to come up with a better predictor of atrial fibrillation using left atrial size and other variables that then get put into a calculator that can better, more precisely define a patient's risk of developing atrial fibrillation. So that calculator is going to be available for anybody to use on, the, on our website soon. Um, and we think it's a better way of assessing risk of atrial fibrillation because it incorporates not only left atrial size, but other variables that are important. Okay. So there are going to be more, the point here is that, that there are going to be more precise ways of defining that risk that go beyond just that single left atrial measurement, okay? That's fantastic. And I can't wait to co-house that on the HCMA website. We can't wait for you to as well co-house that, yes. And, and, and just a shout out, I mean, obviously I, I work closely with him, but he did a great job putting that, that information together, which we think is going to be really helpful for patients. So, um, you know, great job to, to, to Ethan Rowan. Fantastic. Okay, so we're in AFib. We know AFib begets AFib. We know people with AFib are really symptomatic with HCM, more so those who have obstruction are even more symptomatic because right. we lose the atrial kick, the ventricle is not happy, and we have outflow tract obstruction, so the three-time hit. What do patients do to try to get rid of AFib? Yeah, so, so let, me, let me kind of 
summarize a little bit how we approach this from a management standpoint. Right. And there can be different ways of approaching it, like anything out there in medicine. You know, people have you know slightly different ways of doing that from from a physician, you know, HCM expert standpoint. But I'll give you, you know, I think what is uh, <clears throat> I hope a, a balanced approach. So first, if a patient has atrial fibrillation and HCM, the first part of the discussion is recommending blood thinners to protect them against stroke, okay? The second question then that we ask the patient is, how much atrial fibrillation are you feeling? How frustrating is that for you? And how do you feel that that's impacting your quality of life, okay? If the patient feels that the episodes are really few and far between, and this can happen sometimes, you get one episode a year, lasts two minutes. Um, you know, that's maybe not particularly that impactful, and, and that's something we can just watch. Um, they may still get a blood thinner, but, but we may not do anything more because 99% of the time, they're in regular rhythm. Or you may have a patient who's experiencing enough episodes of atrial fibrillation, or they may get episodes, and when they get them, they're particularly long episodes, hours, days. And, 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 that, and that frustrates patients. They feel poorly, as we said, when they're in it. And so then they, they, don't, they, they prefer for that not to happen. So then we say, okay, what can we do to treat atrial fibrillation in that situation? One pathway that can be taken is to use drug therapy. Those are called antiarrhythmic drugs, okay? Antiarrhythmic drugs that a patient could take to help stop that patient from going into atrial fibrillation. So they're drugs to help maintain regular rhythm. Drugs. An example, an example of that would be so. Sorry. Total law. Patient could take stop that. So, sotalol or beta pace is, is is the name of one of those medicines. Dofetilide, or even in some cases amiodarone. So that's a discussion that we would have based on the pros and cons or the strengths and limitations of drug therapy is one option. We like to usually try drugs if drugs don't work because the AFib continues to recur, or a patient would prefer not to do drugs and is still frustrated by atrial fibrillation, that's when we can discuss invasive treatments, which are catheter-based ablations that deliver a form of energy to the left atrium with catheters that you know usually are advanced from the groin up into the heart, to try to, to change the structure of the left atrium in a beneficial way so that the AFib can, cannot be propagated or start in that sense. Those are our two kind of main treatment options, drugs, catheter-based ablations. So we talked about anticoagulation. Right. But we also have antiarrhythmic drugs like sotalol and right. isopyramide possibly, hardcore you know, amiodarone, right. There is a number of different meds that can be tried. They all have their side effects as well. Um, now, do you use these antiarrhythmics on top of typical beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, or they are they instead of? It, so first of all, I want to make the point too, just 
so that there's no confusion. If you decide that you're going to, to, to treat your atrial fibrillation with an antiarrhythmic drug, that doesn't mean that you don't go on a blood thinner. The blood thinner is, 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 is separate. That, that gets started irrespective of the treatment for atrial fibrillation. If you have atrial fibrillation and HCM, you go on a blood thinner. If the AFib is burdensome enough that a patient's frustrated, then we may start to consider an antiarrhythmic drug as well. And the answer to your question is that sometimes we will use the antiarrhythmic drugs plus a beta blocker or plus a calcium channel blocker. And sometimes we won't because some of the antiarrhythmic drugs have beta blocker property in them. And that would be too much beta blocker for a patient. So it depends a little bit on what's going on with that individual patient. Okay. I also failed to mention Ticasin. That's a, an odd one. That yeah. still so fetalide, right? Fetalide, yeah. So very rarely used, but it, it's also a, a tool in the toolbox. We got a lot of tools. So we failed ablation or it's not a good option for whatever the reason. We have an obstructed patient and the obstruction doesn't seem to be causing them as much trouble as the AFib is causing them trouble. Are there surgical options that can be considered? Yeah, so in a patient with the obstructive form of HCM, who also then is starting to develop atrial fibrillation, you know, one consideration, you know, that should be discussed is the opportunity to consider uh, a, a, a treatment strategy of myectomy and maze procedure. Let me explain what may, Cox maze procedure. It's C-O-X-M-A-Z-E. Cox maze is, you can think of it as the surgical equivalent of a catheter-based ablation, okay? It's the application of radio frequency or cryoablation energy delivered to the left atrium and also other parts of, of uh, that are adjacent to the left atrium by the surgeon during an open heart procedure. Okay. And we know that the combination of myectomy and a Cox maze procedure can be very effective at reducing the episodes of future atrial fibrillation as well as making patients feel, of course, as we well know, better from a heart failure standpoint because you relieve the obstruction, okay, at the same time. So in a way, the, the, the myectomy and the maze procedure provides a very comprehensive therapeutic intervention on the HCM heart to address one or more aspects of the HCM heart that are contributing to atrial fibrillation. What I mean by that is that obstruction and the high pressures and also the mitral regurgitation, the leakiness of the mitral valve that come with obstruction can be features that we believe contribute to the development and the reoccurrence of atrial fibrillation because they are strong promoters of increasing that left atrial size, like we talked about. So for that reason, I'll just conclude with this, for that reason, in a patient who 
has obstruction and has at least some symptoms that we can attribute to obstruction and then is starting to develop atrial fibrillation, they should know and be considered for that potential therapeutic pathway of myectomy and maze. While that is happening, what about the left atrial appendage? Is that traditionally clipped or, or is that addressed all the time, some of the time? Should it be all the time? Yeah, so when you have a myectomy, when you're doing a myectomy and you're doing a maze procedure too, it's pretty standard for the surgeon to either tie off or remove completely the left atrial appendage. Okay. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean then that after the surgery, that a patient then gets taken off forever from blood thinners. Okay. We still use blood thinners often after that as well, even though the appendage has been taken out because blood clots can still form on that in that in that area despite the removal of the appendage so it doesn't it, it doesn't eliminate the need for blood thinners but it is done okay another pending we don't have a lot of research on what I'm about to ask you and we didn't discuss this in advance sorry watchman in hcm yeah great question so watchman is a new it's a device it's a device that is placed usually on the end of a catheter. And that catheter then is advanced into the heart, usually through the veins and the arteries and the groin. And then the catheter is advanced to the area where that appendage is. And the watchman device is then deployed. It's almost like, a, you can think of it like almost like a a wall or a clamshell that just gets deployed in that appendage space, right? To occlude it, to occlude it. And, and, and to make kind of a longer story short, that is generally a procedure considered in patients who have atrial fibrillation, including those with HCM, who cannot take blood thinners or have had problems with blood thinners as a way to try to reduce stroke risk in the absence of being able to take a blood thinner. So Watchman does not cure AFib. Right. Lowers your risk of stroke related to AFib. Right. But in the HCM population, you're still going to stay on an anticoagulant if you could, and the right. only people that really should go to Watchmen are those who have contraindication to taking anticoagulants. That is right. That is right. There's always exceptions to those kinds of rules, but that in principle is correct. That's right. I think there was like seven exceptions to that rule as you get down the line. And this is correct. This, and gentlemen, why HCM is complicated, these different tiny little pathways. That's okay. right. So we have maze. You guys, this is the time to post your questions. There's a couple of them out here that I will get to, but I think we've kind of done a really good overview of what it is, how common it is, what to do if you have, oh, okay, let me do this one. What should somebody do if they have a new onset of AFib um, or a pretty acute AFib? It's rapid rate, so your rates are high and you're really not feeling well. 
Should the patient call the doctor? Should they go to an emergency room? Should they just lay there in misery? What should they do if they're in yeah. this? It's a great question. We didn't, this is one you know, aspect to atrial fibrillation we didn't cover. And that's that, you know, there can be situations where an HCM patient goes into atrial fibrillation and the heart rate's very fast, you know, and they, for all the reasons we talked about, don't tolerate atrial fibrillation with high heart rates well at all. They can actually be very symptomatic and even drop blood pressure as a, re as a consequence too. So you can be very sick in, in the throes of an acute episode of atrial fibrillation. In that situation, it's really important to um, reach out to your doctor if that's possible, you know, if it's in, during the week in the middle of the day. If it's not possible or it's at a time that the cardiology office is not open, then you've got to come into the emergency room in that situation because what can be done is what's called an electrical cardioversion. So that's where pads get placed on a patient's chest and through the administration of a brief episode of electricity to convert that patient from atrial fibrillation to regular rhythm to get them out of it if they are really not doing well, okay? So that's why if a patient does feel really poorly, um, they need to seek medical attention. Okay. <clears throat> so cardioversion was like something we did in my family almost monthly when my dad was around. Right. Dad would wake up in the morning, typically after having his AFib trigger. Some people have their own little triggers. My father's was chocolate. He would have chocolate cake the night before me, like, you know what this is going to land in in the morning. And right. he'd be off to the emergency room and he'd be cardioverted. I think he had 14 of them. It's not incredibly common to go that high but he just was not a good management pathway there. So <clears throat> a couple of questions. Ross, I'm gonna correct you from this. Non-obstructed HCM with persistent AFib failed ablation. We go for rate management here and try to keep the rate low. What, do we tr what is a goal for a patient like that? What is yeah, so, Right, so there, there are some patients as well and I think you're kind of getting the feel with this podcast about the fact that, you know, atrial fibrillation is very diverse uh, as well. And so there are all kinds of different, you know, examples and permutations and in, in, in different pathways. And we're not going to be able to cover all of it today. Right. But I think what's being asked is that there are some patients who have what's called permanent atrial fibrillation. We can't get them out. Okay. Despite really good drugs and really good procedures. Occasionally, we can't get them out. Or, or a patient could have atrial fibrillation and not feel it. It's possible. Less possible with HCM, but we see that sometimes. So if a patient has atrial fibrillation and they feel fine, there may not be a reason to do an antiarrhythmic drug or an ablation as long as the rates, the heart rates, are controlled and are too fast. And we, we consider sort of 60 to 80 beats per minute or 60 to 90 beats per minute to be acceptable rate control in atrial fibrillation. So let me summarize that then. If a patient with HCM is in, is in atrial fibrillation 
We may allow them to continue to be in atrial fibrillation if they feel okay with it and their heart rates are controlled and they're on a blood thinner. Okay. Somebody was told by a neurologist at Tufts last week, this is a comment, that the neurologist feels that Watchman will become the primary treatment. Uh, I don't think that neurologist knows a lot about HCM maybe, but I don't know that it'll be a primary, but it'd be an alternative. Yeah, I was going to make the point that, you know, look, we're catching these procedures, these new procedures and devices at a certain slice of time. So Watchman's relatively new, okay? And it's true. You know, there's the possibility that it will evolve and continue to advance and progress and become better and better. And it may have a bigger and bigger primary role in the treatment of stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation. But we'll see. Right now, I think what we just discussed is where we are with it. I don't know where we'll be in five to 10 years, and it may be a different ballgame. We'll have to see. I'm going to pivot to a question about ablation. So <clears throat> we know that HCM hearts do not respond the same way to ablation that non-HCM hearts do. They have a better success rate than we do, but we right. get, what, about 40% on a first attempt, another 40% on a second attempt, meaning getting back to normal sinus rhythm. And a third attempt maybe gets you another 20%, but after that, there doesn't seem to be a lot of statistical uh, probability that it's going to change how your heart's functioning. Is that about accurate? Yeah, I think we say in general that an ATM patient on average requires two ablations to provide them the opportunity to have a significant reduction in the burden of atrial fibrillation, and in some cases elimination, but mostly it's a reduction in the burden of atrial fibrillation out to several years from that second, one or first or second ablation. So that, that's really how we look at it. So I, I always opt to the side of it's worth a try. You know, you might get some AFib free time and it's right. got some benefit. Again, this is one of those procedures that HCMA recommends you go to a high volume center of excellence because the process of an ablation yeah. isn't unique, but an AFib HCM ablation is a bit unique. And we want you to make sure you get the best outcomes from those attempts that you're going to try. Um, I have seen people go through eight or 10 ablations. I think after you're at four, I, I, I just don't think it's gonna work anymore. I've never seen it change really outcomes of you after four or five. No, I'd even say, yeah, you'd have to ask the question, you know, three really seems to be maxed amount, to be honest. Um, I think it'd be incredibly unusual to go beyond three. Okay. All right. So we are talking today about atrial arrhythmias, not ventricular arrhythmias. Some of your questions are going to ventricular arrhythmias. Right. Um, and this is not the topic today. Today is atrial arrhythmias. We try to stick on topic. So we will talk about ventricular arrhythmias in the future. And we have in the past as well. Um, <clears throat> okay. I was diagnosed with obstructive, had myectomy, valve repair, suffered from bad AFib, VTEC, flutter, beta blocker, sodalol. Oh, wow. This is a long story. Um, yet the AFib is not controlled and the symptoms of nausea, fever, fever, fever. Um, I'm not, I don't know that I've heard fever associated. Uh, chest pain, difficulty breathing, et cetera, averaging. Doctors have tried to come up with a solution. Carl, um, I would suggest if you have not seen a center of excellence, maybe they can help you manage these meds a little bit better. 
and try to find the right mix with HCM. Sometimes it can be challenging to find that right mix to get you comfortable if AFib is persistent. So please, um, if you haven't been to a center, if you haven't called us for you know, some referrals, we're happy to do that if you wanna give the office a call and, and check the directory and find one of our great HCMA recognized Center of Excellence partners. Maybe they can help you find some, some solutions here. Um, I think we've kind of answered all the questions. This was a deep dive, detailed podcast, which if you don't have HCM and AFib, you didn't want to listen to this one. Um, but if you think AFib may be something that you have to deal with in the future, I think I want to leave with a couple of parting thoughts on that. Number one, it's not necessarily all doom and gloom. There are some options here. It can be very frustrating. It can be very debilitating, but working with a high volume team is critical to the best possible outcomes. We right. can't get to perfection with everybody, but we can certainly give it one hell of a try. What do you have to say, Marty? Yeah, I think that I'll, I'll expand on that. I mean, I think it, it can be a very frustrating um, issue for HCM patients in particular, atrial fibrillation, but there really are very effective therapeutic interventions today in 2021 from drugs to procedures um, to surgery um, that really can substantially change the outcome of atrial fibrillation in HCM. So I will echo, you know, of course, what you said, if, if you're having, if you're out there and you're frustrated, you really should seek expert opinion um, and consultation uh, for this problem, because there are uh, really good therapies that we have available that, you know, that really should be discussed uh, if they haven't for you. Okay, so I'm going to pivot the conversation just for a second. Uh, tomorrow night, we are having our first online fundraising event called Let's Get Sauced. Uh, not that kind of sauce. We have um, Guy Mitchell, White House chef, who's going to teach us how to make three fun sauces and Barbara Bush's favorite Kenny Bunkport uh, chicken dish. And you can go online and download the ingredient list so you can go shopping today. You can cook along with us live 6 p.m. tomorrow night. Um, you have to register in advance and you can join us for about two hours. We're gonna cook. He's gonna tell stories about the White House behind the scenes. Marty, you saw, you saw guys, uh, event uh, when we honored your dad a couple of years ago he was our entertainment for the night um so did i you loved it i loved it. i really honestly i loved it um you know he's an engaging personality his he's got a, obviously an incredibly unique perspective um on a lot of different things uh related to both food and politics and he is Got a lot of really entertaining stories. It's it's really worth it. It's unique. I think my favorite story has to do with Barbara Bush, right? Vladimir Putin, boxer shorts, and cookies. And cookies. I remember that. Well, that's that. I remember that. That was an amazing story. And and he's got many of those. So please tune in. It's it, it really is worth it. Absolutely. Well, we we hope you all join us tomorrow night, Marty. Thank you for another great episode of Tales from the Heart. And if anybody has any follow-up questions, they are free to contact the office and we're more than happy to help direct you to resources and assistance. And I would encourage you all to join up for our online. We've changed our names. We're not just online support groups. 
We're online discussion groups and support. So there's a lot of great conversation going on out there among your peers. Please sign up for a support group slash discussion group uh, for this month. And um, I have added one session to my repertoire. The, sec the first Tuesday of the month will be transplant pathway discussion group. Um, and for those who follow the HCMA and have followed Debbie Hamilton's story, um, she had a rough month um, where we weren't quite sure what was going to happen in her post-transplant journey. I'm happy to tell you that Debbie joined us for last Tuesday's episode of uh, Transplant Pathway Discussion Group, and she sounded great. So keep those happy thoughts and, and good wishes coming her way. They've really helped. Great. Thank you all. Great. Yeah, it was it was a tricky route, but we're, yeah. we're in a better shape now. All right, guys. Thank you all. Thank you, Thank Mark. You, and have a good day. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4hcmwarriors. That's the number 4hcmwarriors. Follow us on Twitter at 4hcm.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4hcm.org or visit us online at our website, 4hcm.org, and send us an email from there. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time. We would like to thank our sponsors, Myocardia, Invitae, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Learn more about these initiatives at 4hcm.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4hcm.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging, and support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects, including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer, big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4hcm.org to learn more today. Thank you.